Hey, family, welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. <clears throat> my name is Jesse Romero, the Latin lover of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Latin lover of Our Lady, and my partner Terry is out doing some apostolic work. The man never tires working for the gospel. Hey, just want to remind you that <clears throat> we've just entered into the month of September. Yes, this month of September is devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows is a devotion given to us by St. Bridget of Sweden. She passed away in 1373. And during this month, devoted to Our Lady of Sorrows, we're invited to console the sorrowful heart of Mary and to unite our sufferings to hers, and by doing so, to receive the beautiful graces of consolation and strength. The <clears throat> teachers at Liber Christo, Dan Schneider, Kyle Clement, they teach that it is helpful to do a novena to Our Lady of Sorrows, asking her to reveal any sins, vices, or generational spirits that may be plaguing a person or family line. And according to the Church's tradition, because Our Lady went through different, different sorrows during the Passion, she merited different things. One of, the thing, one of the things that she merited while standing beneath the cross of her son was the ability to reveal hidden things, and she knows them more than anyone else in heaven except for God, of course, because of her closeness to the Lord. Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. A couple of things we'll be talking about today. Probably one of the most uh, evil men in the world, and he's a young guy. His name is Yuval Harari. He's an advisor to Klaus Schwab, over at the World Economic Forum. He's a Marxist. And he says that there is no truth. Yep. Yuval Harari says there is no truth. We're also going to talk about Christian nationalism. What does that mean? And is this an existential threat to the Republic of the United States? And then we're going to talk about, for those of you that had young kids in high school and college, what are the four most powerful arguments used by St. Thomas of Aquinas for the existence of God. So we're going to give you the best of St. Thomas <clears throat> regarding the existence of God. Hey, we got some soul food here today. The Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 33 to 39. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. The scribes and the Pharisees, that's the lawyers and the teachers of the law, said to Jesus, The disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus answered them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new cloak to patch an old one. Otherwise, he will tear the new and the piece from it will not match the old cloak. Likewise, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wineskins will burst the skins and it must be spilled and the skins will be ruined. Rather... New wine must be poured into fresh wineskins. 
And no one who's been drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take a look at verse 33, where the scripture tells us, And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Yours eat and drink. Hmm. Fasting in the company of Jesus would be an insult or, or, or would be as insulting as fasting at a wedding feast. Now, when Jesus dies and when he ascends into heaven in his departure, then fasting is going to be important. But how many of you would ever fast at a wedding? No, that's a time to celebrate. Christ is a bridegroom. His presence here on earth was a time to celebrate, not a time to fast. In fact, in verse 35, where our Lord says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In the Old Testament, the Jews would call God the bridegroom. Yahweh was the divine husband of the Old Covenant Israel. We see this in Isaiah 54, verse 5, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 20. But now the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now he assumes this role as the divine spouse of the church, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.25. But what's going on here, in the words of Christ and his explanation, just as new garments and wine are incompatible with old garments and old wineskins, so God's, God's new covenant cannot coexist with the old. That's what he's saying. God's new covenant cannot coexist with the old covenant. It's now been transformed. It's something different. It's been perfected. Allegorically, St. Augustine says about today's gospel, he says, the old wineskins signify the disciples who would more easily burst than contain Jesus' heavenly teaching. Only after Pentecost do the disciples become new skins, enabled by the Spirit to store in themselves a greater fullness of grace and truth. Hey, I want to talk to you about, yeah, just some things to chew on in today's gospel. Powerful words. Just uh, chew on that for a while. In other words, as Catholics, we know that God made a covenant with Adam. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with David. But the final covenant, the perfect covenant, the new and everlasting covenant is his covenant with his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the perfect covenant. It is the new and everlasting covenant. There will be no other covenants in the future. So in terms of covenant history, we are in the final covenant uh, in, in salvation history. And also the Bible has 12 different ages. The Bible has 12 different ages in salvation history. We are in the final age of salvation history in terms of biblical revelation. You have the history of the world, that's phase one. The patriarchs, phase two. Israel and Egypt, phase three. The covenant of Canaan, phase four. The judges, phase five. The United Kingdom of David, phase six. The divided kingdom, seven. The exile of the Jews, eight. The return back uh, at the time in Ezra and Nehemiah, 9, uh, the Maccabean Revolt, 10, 
Then we have the Gospels, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's 11. And then we have the, uh, the age of the church, number 12. We're in the, we are in the age of the church right now. Hey, a couple of news items. President Joe Biden's Eternal Revenue Service gave a, a, a huge number of prison inmates at least $1.3 billion in COVID-19 stimulus checks. The Washington Free Beacon reported there are more than 1.1 million incarcerated individuals who took in the stimulus money. According to IRS data provided to the Free Beacon, as part of Biden's $1.4 trillion American Rescue Plan, those incarcerated who received the stimulus money includes roughly 163,000 people serving life sentences without parole. Another news item, Yale, Yale doctor treats trans three-year-olds. Yep, many were furious when a video went viral depicting Dr. Christy Olezeski, who co-founded the Yale Pediatric Gender Program, saying she helps children as young as three with their medical gender journeys. The director of Yale's gender program said in a video that she and her staff work with gender-expansive individuals from the ages of 3 to 25 and their families. After a public outcry, Yale hid the online video. Shame on them. Matt Walsh, Catholic commentator, <clears throat> calls on, he's from the Daily Wire, he calls on, on Thursday, call for medical professional doctors to go public with their criticisms of subjecting children to gen, transgender treatments. Matt Walsh said he routinely hears from doctors who oppose these practices, but they insist on remaining anonymous. Matt Walsh said it's good, but it's not nearly enough. You're the first line of, def you're the first line of defense. You're the people that we need. Also, an analysis on Biden's election year bribe. Commentators on both sides of the political aisle have criticized Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from California argued as recently as April 2022 that presidents lack the authority to enact such a plan. Others argue that the move is simply an effort to clinch the youth vote in head of the midterm elections. Uh, Brian Birch from Catholic Vote says, but I'm concerned most of all for the working families already struggling in this inflation. Biden is trying to saddle them with a $300 billion inflation enhancer. And then finally, majority supports PRCs. A new poll from CRC Research found that a majority of Americans across the political spectrum support public funding for pregnancy resource centers. Overall, 64% of Americans support public funding of these centers for mothers, including 70% of Democrats. The poll comes after prominent Democrats like Senator Liz Warren, Democrat from Maine or Massachusetts, have called for a crackdown on such clinics and after months of violent attacks on pregnancy resource centers by pro-abortion groups. Up next, we're going to talk about the World Economic Forum advisor, Yuval Harari. He's a Marxist. He says there is no truth. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. The World Economic Forum advisor, Yuval Harari, He's a Marxist who believes that there is no truth. Did you hear that? 
<coughs> there's no truth. He says the only thing that we have is power, raw power. Yuval Harari, he's a highly influential figure in modern politics. That's why I'm bringing him up. He's a prominent homosexual atheist at the World Economic Forum. He's highly influential in modern politics. <clears throat> and uh, when you look at some of his ideas, you begin to see his motivation. He's a staunch, godless, secular humanist that has infiltrated the highest place in, 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 in Israel, in Judaism. Why do I say that? He's a lecturer at the Department of History in the University of Jerusalem. Yuval Harari utilizes history, philosophy, and biology in his reflections on what he believes are the most important global challenges facing the world today. And he strives to focus the public conversation on these issues. You know, there was a very holy uh, Israel called Moses, St. Moses, the prophet. He wrote the first five books of the Bible to tell us about God. But Yuval Harari, this Israeli, he's written five books that describe his worldview that there is no God. So you've got Moses who wrote five books that there is a God. Yuval Harari who's written five books that there isn't no God, there's just power. Something interesting about Yuval Harari also is that in some of his interviews, he mentions his husband. <clears throat> and he admits with pride that being homosexual affects his research. He said it. Being homosexual affects my research, which serves as a major indicator of my worldview. And so, of course, uh, Yuval Harari, you'll see that he rationalizes homosexuality on the grounds that anything exists by definition is natural. Well, this World Economic Forum advisor, he's a young guy too. He's not going anywhere any, anytime soon. Yuval Harari openly rejects objective values such as human rights, calling them fictions or stories, and he's usually fixated on power when you listen to him. Yuval Harari is rightly regarded by the thinking population as one of the most dangerous intellectuals alive. The World Economic Forum advisor has already won notoriety for his dehumanizing statements, his dystopian predictions, and his role in the World Economic Forum, this organization that appears to be hastening the fulfillment of all these things. So the answer boils down to this question. If in Yuval Harari's eyes, we are no higher than animals and the vast majority of the world's population is now unnecessary. So where does that leave us? Yuval Harari believes in what is understood to be a fundamental tenet of cultural Marxism. Yuval Harari believes there is no truth. There is only power. That's Marxism. That's communism. And that's what he believes. He's a fallen away Jew. I guess a practicing Jew could call him an apostate Jew. Yuval Harari, this young advisor to, the, to, to Klaus Schwab, and both of them are part of the World Economic Forum, Yuval Harari believes that there is no truth in the most consequential and dangerous possible way. While Yuval Harari acknowledges there is an objective scientific reality, 
Yuval Harari has openly rejected the existence of objective values. Harari thus rejects firm values, such as a sanctity of human life, as a foundation for society and its laws. And Yuval Harari made this clear in a recent interview with Chris Anderson, who's the head of, of the TED Media Group, the same interview in which he infamously declared that the world does not need the vast majority of its population. So Harari is just like Bill Gates. He's another depopulation eugenicist. In their discussion, Chris Anderson, from the, the head of TED Media Group and Yuval Harari, he tellingly describes societal values as fictions or stories, citing human rights as one such example. He said that human rights are not a biological fact, but a story we have constructed. In fact, Harari has previously gone so far as to claim that Homo sapiens is a post-truth species whose power depends on creating and believing fictions. The import of Harari becomes disturbingly clear in his interview with Anderson when he appears to totally distance himself from human rights as a fixed principle. When Anderson again brings up human rights, also describing them as human construction, Yuval Harari interjects and speaks of it in the past tense, pointedly suggesting inalienable rights are not a timelessly applicable principle. In fact, here's what Yuval Harari says. He says the following quote, It was a very good story, that is, inalienable human rights, but it's also dangerous to confuse a story. We have constructed in a particular historical setting and think we can just apply it to any, uh, to any other historical period or to any other political and geographical location today in the world. Yuval Harari and Chris Anderson are so sophisticated, they have transcended the idea of human rights. In fact, their belief is a natural consequence of their atheism, which makes arbitrary any belief in objective values. Yuval Harari's cultural Marxist claim that power has usurped truth has been strongly suggested in, the, in his past articles and interviews, such as when he claimed that science is about power and not truth. Or when he wrote that as a species, humans prefer power to truth. Boy, this is this man's a talking snake. This is a this is Luciferian language. I mean, this is the denial of God and his sovereignty. This is Luciferian. The concerning belief is also suggested in Yuval Harari's interview with Chris Anderson when uh, Chris Anderson asked him, quote, isn't it possible that some of these stories are truer than others? And, and he mentions science as something he doesn't want to believe is just another story. Well, immediately, Yuval Harari gravitates to the subject of power, answering, no, science isn't. We need to differentiate two types of power in history. You have the power over objective reality, like to build bridges or cure diseases or build an atom bomb. And then you have the power over humans and their subjective feelings or imagination, making them believe in something. Yuval Harari is signaling here that he sees the entire spectrum of reality through the lens of power rather than truth. Even his objective realm of science also revealing is the importance that Yuval Harari places on the power over the human will. 
via the feelings and the imagination. Hmm. Wow. When Yuval Harari's ideas are pieced together, they're Luciferian. This, is, this man's a talking snake. One can see Yuval Harari's cultural Marxist worldview emerge. Those in power can manipulate society's values to their own ends with no such things as objective values, including human rights. Society's enslaved to the arbitrary ideas and whims of its rulers. That's what Harari believes. Back in 2018, Yuval Harari wrote, Truth and power can travel together only so far. Sooner or later, they go their separate ways. If you want power, at some point you'll, ha you'll have to spread fictions. If you want to know the truth about the world, at some point you'll, you'll have to renounce power. You'll have to admit things, for example, about the sources of your own power that will anger allies, dishearten followers, or undermine social harmony. As a species, humans prefer power to truth, says Yuval Harari again. He says, we spend more time and effort on trying to control the world than on trying to understand it. And even when we try to understand it, we usually do so in the hope that understanding the world will make it easier to control it. Therefore, if you dream of a society in which truth reigns supreme and myths are ignored, you have little to expect from homo sapiens. Consider, considering Harari's position as advisor to the head of the World Economic Forum, which has a massive government and corporate influence, we should further ask, what does this statement by Harari say about himself and the World Economic Forum? Here's something interesting. Yura Harari is a practicing homosexual. When you read some of his statements, I mean, this guy's a complete atheist and a secular humanist. He completely denies God and his son, Jesus Christ. He says there is no truth, there's only power. He's a communist Marxist. But, but the way he talks, he talks like a, 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 he's, he's irrational. In police work, when somebody was on the street and they were crazy, and there's crazy people on the street, mental illness, drug addiction, some through no fault of their own, and some through their own fault. We used to call them 5150s. That was their, that's what they were called back in California, Los Angeles. 5150, the Welfare and Institution Code, a person who's a danger to himself or others. Yuval Harari is a 5150. He's a danger to himself and to others. You know, before 1973, it would have been very easy to make that statement, to make it stick. Because before 1973, the American Psychological Association said that homosexuality was a mental illness. Did you catch that? I believe, I believe uh, that's exactly it. It's a mental illness, and it's also a sin of the heart, sin of lust. But before 1973, it was considered a, a mental illness. I would call it a disorder. I, I would use a theological terms. Homosexuality is a disorder, an internal disorder. But again, it was on the books. It was called a mental illness by the, by the DSM. After 1973, as a result of political lobbying by the homosexuals, they removed it from the DSM, as uh, as uh, as under the guise of mental illness, but uh, the fact is, Yuval Harari, his uh, his claims about that we don't have that human rights are something arbitrary, something that we've invented. And that there is no such thing as truth. In other words, he says there's no such thing as God. You know, Yuval Harari, he believes in science and its two processes. He believes that science is deterministic and random. 
and a combination of the two creates probability. Harari suggests the closest thing there is to freedom, but there is no free will. He claims free will always always is a myth and not a scientific reality. You know, Yuval Harari's argument is that since there's no creator, he calls God the man in the sky. He does it condescendingly. We cannot be created equal, and therefore human beings cannot be endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. Well, in the United States Declaration of Independence, it begins precisely that way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, guess what? In a 25-cent coin, it says, in God we trust. Yep. Hey, up next, we're going to talk about Christian nationalism. Is it an existential threat to the Republic of the United States? Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. The question is, is Christian nationalism an existential threat to the republic? Well, if you listen to those on the left, those Marxists and communists on the left, and if you listen to the mainstream media, you, you would think that Christian nationalism is the biggest problem that we're facing in this country. In fact, the left has called Christian nationalism the biggest single threat to America's religious freedom. They've also said it's a severe and present danger to the American democracy. Uh, among other things, by the way, the Christian nationalism, if somebody, if a Catholic were to put their nation before God, that would also be the heresy of Americanism from a Catholic point of view. But... Uh, so what is this menace imperiling the nation? Uh, is it neo-Marxism? Is it climate change denial? Is it the originalist Supreme Court? No, according to the left, it's Christian nationalism. A term, really, there's, there's still no settled definition, yet it's something that people in the know want you to, want you to think is bad. Uh, no, not bad, dangerous, actually. As to how dangerous, I remind you that the week before the court ruling on Roe versus Wade, it was finalized and made public, conservative Christians uh, expressed worry that a pro-life victory would embolden Christian nationalists. In other words, the existential threat of Christian nationalism is greater than the legalized killing of hundreds of thousands of children every year. If true... That's a monumental threat deserving all opprobrium being heaped upon it. But that depends on what's meant by Christian nationalism. It is, is it a sectarian mood? Is Christian nationalism an organized movement? Is it a dominionist or integralist ideology? Or is it just a name for the Christian right? At the surface... Christian nationalism is a term of relatively recent vintage that is a mashup of two words that can have vastly different meanings, depending on whom one asks. A Christian can apply to the beliefs 
of the spiritual but not the religious, as well as the Bishop of Rome. Likewise, nationalism can apply equally to beliefs of the patriot and the fascist. To the former, it is the ideal that the nation should be a self-governing body of citizens with a set of cultural norms sustained by traditional values like liberty, equality, and freedom. To the latter, it's the exclusion from that ideal of certain people, groups, because of ethnicity, race, religion, or country of origin. Consequently, Christian nationalism is bound by two extremes. On the one hand, it's the belief that America is and must remain an exclusively white Christian nation by force or violence if necessary. Here the association with white nationalism and neo-Nazism conjures up the harrowing specters of white robes, lynchings, and holocausts. On the other hand, Christian nationalism is a view that America is a pluralistic nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles that form the basis of its rule of law and must be preserved for the common good. A position that nearly every American since the nation's founding would agree with. For while the founders may not have endorsed the church as an arm of the state, nor the state as an arm of the church, they considered biblical faith essential to the principles of liberty, justice, law, and governance that became institutionalized as uniquely American. And between these two extremes is the description of Christian nationalism by Yale sociologist Bill Gorsky. He says, It's an ideology based on the myth that the country was founded as a Christian nation by white Christians and its laws and institutions are based on Protestant Christianity, close quote. And that America, back to Philip Gorsky from a Yale sociologist, he says, and that America is, quote, divinely favored and has been given the special mission to spread the religion, freedom, and civilization, close quote. Yet even that description argues Miles Smith would have been apt for most American churches and denominations historically. As he explains, American Protestants and Catholics both argue that God had favored the United States and that Christian owed God our labor to make our society more virtuous uh, per, per broadly Christian precepts. If this is the standard of Christian nationalism, every American from John Winthrop to Abraham Lincoln to Franklin D. Roosevelt to Billy Graham could be termed a Christian nationalist. Smith... Miles Smith, the historian, he points out that, that Roosevelt, quote, saw Christian civilizational precepts as essential for the maintenance of the American Republic, close quote. For example, in a 1940 letter to the Jewish Education Committee, Franklin D. Roosevelt wrote, quote, Our modern democratic way of life has its deepest roots in our great common religious heritage, which for ages past has taught to civilize mankind the dignity of the human being, his equality before God, and his responsibility in the making of a better and fairer world. So, maybe it's not this mainstream variety of Christian nationalism that has churned up the fever swamps. Perhaps it's a strain, author Jonathan Wilson, he considers, quote, to be the greatest threat to democracy. 
because it has built a base that is already and willing to subvert the will of the American people, close quote. Whether or not he has divined the intent of that strain correctly, his claim that it is the greatest threat to democracy is specious. At best, given it by his, by his admission, it is a minority movement with, with a diminishing base. As he points out, that base is predominantly white evangelical Protestantism, which has been in freefall for decades and now accounts for only 14% of all Americans. Even if it is generously granted that half of all white evangelical Protestants are so-called Christian nationalists, that's only 7% of Americans. Yet as evidence of this grave threat to the Republic, Jonathan Wilson suggests that this fringe group is responsible for overturning Roe versus Wade against the majority of Americans who support legalized abortion and reject theocracy. If not stopped, Jonathan Wilson, he, uh, he, he warns these people, he says, who claim to speak for all Christians, they will impose, impose their will on all Americans. Close quote. But the recent SCOTUS decision was not made possible by a small percentage of Christians who might have endorsed a toxic con- concept of nationalism. Rather, it was made possible by 56% of all Christians who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, not because they were racist or xenophobes or because they wanted a theocracy, but because they held traditional beliefs about marriage, sexuality, and personhood and valued fiscal responsibility, secure borders, energy independence, and school choice. Just normal Americans. In a prior day, these mainstream folk were called social and fiscal conservatives or value voters. But today, as the progressive utopia is slipping away at the ballot box, they're labeled Christian nationalists. This despite the fact that a a vanishingly small percentage would fit the nefarious descriptions presumed by most critics and denounced by all decent people, including those who are being so labeled. It's a clever strategy intended to marginalize, delegitimize anyone and anything standing, uh, standing athwart the progressive march to new moral norms and government expansion. What better way to silence your opponents than to associate them and their beliefs with the darkest examples of human history? What better way to impose your will on them and undermine democracy? You know what the left does? They use communist tactics and they use also diabolical tactics. One of the things that demons and communists do is they like to use accusations and slander. In fact, the term devil means accuser or the slander. That is someone who accuses someone else of wrongdoing perceived real, which is perceived or real. Demons constantly accuse those whom they possess. They constantly harangue them by telling them, Telling them you're evil, you're evil, God doesn't love you, when in point of fact, God is using the possession to sanctify the individual or to help the individual come closer to God. Once again, communists and Marxists, they do the same thing. Demons, communists, and Marxists, like in this country, they also accuse people when they obsess people and constantly make them feel bad about things and tempt tempt them to things which are often false. 
In fact, the person will very often appropriate certain thoughts to themselves by asking themselves, what kind of person would think such a thing about me? When in, when in point of fact, it's not even from them, it's from the devil. Accusation is done in order to place the person on the defensive. You accuse him, so he has to defend himself to place the person in a position of weakness. That's what the Marxists do in this country. That's what the communists do. And that's what they do with this whole term that they throw around with, you're a Christian nationalist. This is the goal. This is why, again, demons, they accuse you so that you feel bad about yourself. So not, not only do you feel bad about thinking bad about yourself, but you also have to deal with the demon and his haranguing. It's to multiply the, the fronts in the spiritual warfare. It's done to destroy the person's self-image. This name calling, you're a Christian nationalist. It's done to destroy the person's self-image, the image they think other people have of them, and the person's own reputation. Communists and demons, they accuse others of what they themselves are guilty of. They themselves cause harm to other people for not being for other people's well-being. Hey, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the four most powerful arguments used by St. Thomas of Aquinas regarding the existence of God. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. On planet Earth, you have two types of people. You have people that believe in God, people that don't believe in God. We call the people that don't believe in God, or they call themselves atheists. Atheism is, is something that Really, it's, just, it's, it's a modern phenomena. It started around the 18th century, where the term was first used. I would say that just before that, people weren't that stupid. People were too smart uh, to deny the existence of God. But right around the 18th century, when we had the, <clears throat> the French Enlightenment thinkers, and when we had, again, this, uh, this appeal to academia... All of a sudden, you started finding that people started losing their mind. I'll tell you what, atheism, you know what it really is? It's an attack. It's hell's next attack on the Catholic faith. It started in the 18th century, full force. Yep. I call atheism the devil's gospel or the opiate of the intellectuals. If you think about it, Life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. So what are the four classic arguments for the existence of God by the great angelic doctor, St. Thomas of Aquinas? In the Catechism, paragraph 47, the Church teaches that the one true God, our Creator and Lord, can be known with certainty from His works by the natural light of human reason. By the natural light of human reason. I make absolutely no claim on originality here. Again, these are all 
this this is all based on the Judeo-Christian understanding of God and His existence. And it's always good to have a ready argument for the existence of God, especially since this weird atheistic culture shows no sign of slowing down. So, without further delay, we got Pascal's wager. In this day and age, when the state not only supports but actively encourages almost every form of gambling, but actively and actually encourages it, and at the same time pervades the myth that the proceeds from state-sponsored gambling goes to public education. <laughs> yeah, right. It's hard to even, to even say this canard without laughing aloud. So why not bet on the existence of God? This concept, which dates back to the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, famous for his tome simply entitled Penses. It seems simple enough on the surface. Either God exists or he doesn't. However, since we're already in this crazy mixed-up game of life, we have everything to gain by living our lives, betting that God exists, and living a life in accord with that belief. And if at the end of this life we find that God doesn't exist after all, we, we will still have won since we have led a virtuous Christian life. Pascal took a lot of grief for leaving the door open for the concept of God not existing, but this was part of the, the, the ploy of his wager in which the player never loses. And Pascal had slipped, at least in part, to the heresy of Jansenism, which ravaged most of France throughout the 17th century and wouldn't finally be stamped out until the time of St. Teresa the Little Flower. Still, Pascal's wager makes a lot of sense, no pun intended, and it preempts the I don't want to, be, I don't want to play this game argument by pointing out that it's too late not to. One has to decide to bet either for or against the existence of God, as one is already alive, and hopefully preparing for a grace-filled death. Second argument, the ontological argument or the argument from being. Unlike Pascal's wager, which had its origin, a man many considered a heretic, the ontological argument for the existence of God dates back to St. Anselm, who died in 1109 A.D., who was both Archbishop of Canterbury and known as Dr. Mag Magificus. Like Pascal, however, Anselm's argument is deceptively simple. We can conceive of perfection since we live in a world of imperfection where things break down and things go wrong every day. We often wonder what a world would be like. And since we are imperfect beings, we can conceive of a perfect being, which we call God. The clincher for this argument, if God weren't perfect, he couldn't exist. And if he didn't exist, he wouldn't be God, or, for that matter, perfect. Perhaps, somewhat surprisingly, this rather loose argument took, took hold and held on for so long, not so much because the church promulgated it as dogma. In the meantime, St. Thomas Aquinas would come along with his his prime mover argument. But uh, this, this argument was held for a long time because a group of 7th century European philosophers, none of whom we'd call practicing Catholics, one was a Jew who was banished from a synagogue, 
rediscovered it and gave it their own twist. It was the 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 non the non believing secular philosopher Leibniz, Spinoza, and Descartes. They all they all wrote about the ontological argument. Still, despite its chicken and, and the egg feel to it, the ontological argument still beats its detractors to the punch. Namely, if one is so sure a perfect being does not exist, why are you able to conceive it? Then we have the teleological argument, the argument from design. Though, St. Augustine doesn't get direct credit for this one, St. Augustine's poem, The Beauty of Creation, bears witness to God. It's about as accurate a summation of this theory behind God's existence that one could hope for. In St. Augustine's own immortal words, he says the following, quote, Question the beauty of the earth, the beauty of the sea, the beauty of the wide air around you, the beauty of the sky. Question the order of the stars, the sun whose brightness lights the day, the moon whose splendor softens the gloom of night. Question the living creatures that move through the water, that roam upon the earth, that fly through the air, the spirit that is manifest, the visible things that are ruled, the invisible that rules them. Question all these, they will answer you. Behold and see, we are beautiful. Their beauty is your confession of God. Who made these beautiful changing things? If not one who is beautiful and changeth not. The philosophical theological argument actually predates Christianity and goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. Part of the immediate appeal of this argument is that the earth in particular and the universe in general are indeed pretty amazing things. And ironically, advances in science have actually helped this argument by showing how incredibly complex nature make that nature truly is. One only need to turn on National Geographic Channel or the Nova, for example, for an example of this. And the more one looks at cells, leaves, waves, and the relations to the phase of the moon, the rotation of the seasons, symbiotic relationships within the natural sciences, along with discoveries as deep as the ocean and as far as Mars, literally it's hard not to imagine that a divine architect, namely God, is behind such beauty. Still, the argument for design suffers from the complaint that while the world is phenomenal, it's fraught with inexplicable natural catastrophes from typhoons to tornadoes, sinkholes to tsunamis, which an atheist will use to point out that the world is not perfect. It is worth noting here that the teleological argument doesn't posit that the world is perfect, but its creator is. That he allows for such vagaries of nature, of nature and natural disaster is part of, the, of God's inscrutable plan. And the fact that nature has not destroyed itself, but perdured, despite man's attempt to destroy other men and the earth in the process, is attributed to God's perfect vis-a-vis -vis man's imperfection. And finally, we get the prime mover argument, or the cosmological argument. Up until the middle of the 20th century, when Thomism enjoyed a new vogue thanks to Jacques Maritain and G.K. Chesterton, the concept of a prime mover was the classic Catholic philosopher's case for the existence of God. St. Thomas Aquinas took Aristotle's concept of an unmoved mover and gave it a Christian bent, the unmoved mover, the first cause, that being the being that sets all others in motion we call God. This argument took hold since Aristotle and Aquinas held such stature even during their lifetimes that it seemed like the, the, only, simple, the only simple common sense that one could, could not have an infinite series of causes. 
and that there had to be one and only one prime cause, QED, God exists. Atheists hiding behind a cloud of computer screens and mathematical equations seem to do damage to the cosmological argument by showing that there can be all kinds of infinite mathematical series. But this is a lot of like saying you're going to build a perpetual motion machine. The minute you start building it, you're acknowledging that such a machine does, does not exist, much less is in motion, let alone perpetually. While this might not be the most airtight of all the arguments for the existence of God, I'd certainly throw my lot in with Aquinas and Aristotle instead of some PhD in a computer science in Palo Alto, California. My name is Jesse Romero. You've been listening to the Terry and Jesse show. By the way, I would recommend if you've never watched these movies with your young junior high, high school, college kids, there's a movie called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. I rent that movie. It came out in 2008. It shows the fact that there's, a, there's hostile classrooms in America between atheist professors and, and students of faith. There's another great movie called God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead 1, it came out in 2014. And God's Not Dead 2, it came out in 2016. Atheism is the rejection of the belief that God exists. Again, the term atheism originated in France in the 16th century and open admission to positive atheism in modern times came about in the late 18th century. Before the 18th century, the existence of God was universally accepted in the Western world. You know, <laughs> that's a wrap. This is why a lot of Catholic kids leave, uh, leave the faith in college and in high school. Because they're bamboozled by the arguments of atheists. Hey, church. Hey, family. Have a great weekend. Have a blessed weekend. Remember, we serve the 12-star general, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pray your rosaries. Read your Holy Bible every day. Live in a state of grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. And remember, Christ reigns. Christ commands. Christ conquers. Let that burn in your heart. Let, we're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. Have a great weekend. God bless you. Keep the faith. It is more precious than silver and gold.